0: You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook Mountain View Church NC. Well, good morning. How are we doing this morning? Good. Well, it's good to see all of you. If this is your first time at Mountain View, Welcome. My name's Mike, I'm one of the pastors, and uh, it is good to have you here. Um, We hope the service is a real blessing to you this morning. Um, A reminder that didn't make it into the announcements that I spoke a bit about last week, Pinwheel Tutoring uh, launches tomorrow right here at Mountain View. And there are plenty of opportunities for you to volunteer. In fact, it's a great way for you to have an impact on kids and families in our community. And uh, if you'd like to plug in, there are some flyers out in the Connection Center. You're welcome to grab one on your way out this morning. Well, I invite you to turn to the book of Habakkuk. We are in the middle of a series walking through this uh, prayer journal of one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. And we're going to be finishing out chapter 1 and diving into chapter 2 this morning. Well, I sat in my car in the parking lot of the church, and I just stared at the red brick house across the street, It was February, and it was cold and overcast outside. The trees were barren, and so was my soul. I found myself questioning everything I believed. Everything. I felt utterly betrayed by God. You see, a couple of years before, I'd stepped out in faith, believing God was leading me in a particular direction, but nothing ever materialized. Doors opened and doors closed again and again. So I began to think that God might just want me to stay put right where I was. At first, that thought was pretty hard to take, and for a time, I wasn't happy about it but I got there, I really, really did. In fact, I became more than okay with staying put. I was excited to continue doing what I was doing. That's why it hurt so much when I was told that I was gonna be let go. Now on the human side of things, it was understandable. The budget constraints were real and they had allowed me to continue doing What I was doing for two years while I explored the Lord's direction. On the spiritual side of things, not so much. Why would God cut my feet right out from underneath me at the very moment I'd become content? Joyful even about the idea of planting myself right where I was, For the long haul, the whole thing felt like some spiritual sucker punch to the gut. Like I was the victim of some twisted game played by a deity who had nothing better to do than make the lives of his people miserable. I was in the midst of a spiritual crisis of faith, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to process the thoughts that I was having and the things that I was feeling. I didn't know who I could talk to. And honestly, I was genuinely afraid of the spiritual and relational fallout if I just walked away from all of it. I wish I'd known the book of Habakkuk then like I do now. I think he would have been a helpful companion to have in the midst of that confusing storm. He had his own crisis of faith, you know. He asked God over and over again to do something about the evil and injustice in his country, and in spite of God's apparent silence and inaction in his country, he continued to believe that God would intervene and correct it all. But he never could have anticipated exactly what God was going to do. And when God finally did tell him how he planned to address all of it, it sent him into something of a faith freefall. Not every person, though, who walks with God has a crisis of faith. It's not some rite of passage you should should expect if you entrust your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, nor is it something you should mourn if you've never had one. But a fair number of followers walk through such things. And for all kinds of reasons. Which is why I'm grateful that God has given us access to the very personal prayers of this heartbroken prophet. You know, some people fight significant doubts about whether or not they're really saved. Some people fight significant doubts about whether or not God actually loves them. Some fight significant doubts about things the Bible teaches. Some battle doubts about their own spiritual experiences. Was such and such an answer to prayer or simply a coincidence? Some people battle doubts over the truthfulness of the Christian faith in the face of a world full of religions claiming to know the way to God. And some, like Habakkuk, battle doubts about the character of God. Is God really sovereign? Does God really care? Is God really good? how could a good and sovereign God allow all of this evil and suffering? Well, the book of Habakkuk not only charts a course for us through the valley of sorrow, it also charts a course for us through the valley of the shadow of doubt. And if we're willing to listen once again to the very raw and honest and humble conversation that the prophet has with God, you and I will find real help for navigating a crisis of faith should we find ourselves in one. We will find directions for helping those we love walk through the darkness of doubt should it ever engulf them. So, This is Habakkuk's response to God's response to him, beginning in verse 12 of chapter one. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like sprawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will answer me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Father, would you bless the very simple reading and hearing of your word as we talk this morning about navigating significant doubt, even a crisis of faith, I pray that you'll grant those in this room grace to turn toward you if they are walking that road. And I pray that you'll equip all of us better as your people to walk with others who may be walking through significant doubts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So God has responded to Habakkuk's continued cries for help. He's revealed to Habakkuk his plan to raise up the Babylonians in order to execute judgment on the land of Judah. And just as God predicted, Habakkuk simply cannot believe that this is God's solution to the extensive problems among his people. If God's silence had before left Habakkuk in anguish, God's response to his repeated requests has rattled him and wrecked him and caused him to question everything he thought he knew about God. In our text this morning, all of the where are you questions and the why haven't you done anything questions from the beginning of the book dissolve into the disillusionment of the who are you questions. Questions that indicate that Habakkuk's faith in God has been shaken to its very core. Have you ever been there? Three questions in our text from a man who thought he knew God, who thought he knew what to expect from God, a man who is still eager to know and understand God in spite of or perhaps because of what he's just heard from God. Question number one, he asks in verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One, certainly we shall not. In other words, are you not an infinite God? Is the covenant that you established with your people not binding based on who you are? Surely you're not going to level this place and destroy your people. Surely you can't just sit by and watch as this happens. Question number two, in verse 13, you are of purer eyes than to see evil, and you can't look it wrong. I know you're a holy God. Why then do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? Are you not a holy God? Surely you can't just sit by and watch while the wicked Babylonians swallow up your people. How is that even right? And then question number three. In verse 17 of chapter one. Is he, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, this people coming to invade Judah, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever. That summarizes what Habakkuk writes from verses 14 through 17, which we can basically summarize this way. Are you not the creator of all things who deserves glory and honor from all peoples? In those verses, he talks about how the Babylonians basically go out and conquer all these people and then they give glory to themselves for doing it. So Habakkuk says, surely you didn't make the nations so that the Babylonians could gobble them up live in luxury as a result and give praise to their false gods for empowering them to overrun every people on earth. That doesn't seem to fit with who you are. Now, I want to be sure we understand something. Habakkuk isn't putting God on trial here. He's not addressing God proudly as if God is on the witness stand and he's he's a prosecuting attorney just berating the accused with questions. No, Habakkuk's addressing God as you and I might address a known, treasured, and trusted friend whose words and actions we don't understand and can't make sense of in light of what we've always known to be true. Habakkuk's heart is shattered. And he's trying to make sense of God. Notice how he addresses God in verse 12. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? So, In the midst of his doubt, he takes his questions honestly to the only one who can actually make sense of them. You see, doubts can be dealt with if they're shared. Only doubts that are brought into the light can be addressed. Doubts left unspoken actually have a way of accumulating in the heart and distancing the heart from God over time. This is why it's essential as Habakkuk models for us to bring our doubts humbly and honestly before the Lord whenever and wherever we encounter them. Especially if we find ourselves in the midst of a full-blown crisis of faith like Habakkuk. This week I've thought a lot about what compelled Habakkuk to share his honest doubts about God with God in the way that he does here in our text. And I think three things are true. Number one, the religious person would never express themselves to God in this way even if they have such doubts about God. Why? Because they're too busy trying to impress God by putting their best foot forward with God, thinking that somehow, some way, they've got to convince God to love them and accept them. So, they just put their doubts on lockdown. And they soldier on believing that deep down God is pleased with them because of their performance. And then secondly, the modern secular person would never express themselves to God in this way either. If anything, the doubts they have can become an excuse to indict and convict God on all counts to essentially do away with belief in God altogether because he does things and allows things the modern secular person doesn't understand. It's the equivalent of canceling God because you don't agree with God's work and God's ways. But Habakkuk is different. He comes to God and he wrestles with God and he refuses to let go of God even when he can't make sense of God. This is the road less traveled. Now what makes the difference? Habakkuk has undoubtedly experienced the grace of God. There's no other way that he could come into the presence of God and express his doubts about God to God. He knows the God who would ultimately be revealed in Jesus Christ, the God who responds kindly and tenderly to the humble and the honest plea, I believe, help my unbelief. To doubt God is the seed from which every subsequent sin sprang in the garden. And it shouldn't surprise us that we still wrestle with it as children of Adam and Eve who are in the process of being made whole by the Holy Spirit through faith in the Son of God. To trust that God can handle our doubts and can heal our doubtful hearts requires a work of grace in our hearts the kind that convinces you and me that we do not have to hide our doubts when we have them, but we can bring them into the light of his presence because God is gracious toward sinners who come humbly and honestly to him for help. Do you have that kind of friendship with the Lord? Habakkuk's crisis of faith is an invitation into that kind of relationship with the Lord if you don't. The kind of relationship that is not based on your performance, but the kind of relationship that is based upon God's willingness receive the one who comes humbly and honestly by faith. You see, Habakkuk's doubts show us the way forward when we experience significant doubts in our relationship with God. His questions reveal to us a God who is willing to receive us when we doubt and they invite us to come just as we are into the arms of a savior who will never turn away the humble and honest doubter. So don't deny your doubts. Take them to the Lord. In other words, doubt Toward God, not away from God. Secondly, I would suggest to you, if you're experiencing significant doubts, or perhaps you will in the future, to search out saints who have wrestled with the Lord. I mentioned earlier my own regret that I did not know the book of Habakkuk during my own period of doubt like I do now, I really do think it would have helped me to know that I wasn't alone. Whenever you and I are wrestling with significant doubts, that's incredibly important. Doubt has a way of isolating us, just like suffering does. Especially when we find ourselves around people who don't necessarily seem to struggle with doubts of their own. It can be difficult to give voice to our doubts when we feel like no one else on earth has them. By the way, this is why we're told in Jude verse 22 to have mercy on those who doubt, to create the kind of environment in our church and in our Bible studies and in our small groups and in our ministries, for folks to express their doubts among the compassionate who will receive them. Be present with them, listen to them, pray with them, support them, and point them to the light and the truth that is in Jesus Christ. Too often in churches, those who have doubts and who have expressed them have been reprimanded, ostracized and made to feel as if they don't belong because they have genuine questions. This should not be. When Jude writes, have mercy on those who doubt, he uses a word that means wavering uncertainty. He's calling those who represent Christ to be tender toward those who are at odds with themselves over competing truth claims. And he's telling us not to crush or condemn such people, but to help them. Last week I shared with you an old hymn, God Moves In a Mysterious Way, written by William Cooper in the late 1700s. I also told you that for much of his life, he suffered from severe anxiety and depression, and that John Newton, the pastor and author of Amazing Grace, proved to be a good friend to him. A good example of what it means to bear the mercy of Christ Unto the distressed and doubting soul. During those seasons when Cooper doubted his own salvation, Newton wrote to him numerous times, reminding him of the evidences of God's grace that he had seen in his life along the way, assuring him as best he could that he was indeed a child of God. When you and I are in the throes of doubt, it is so incredibly helpful to have good, godly, and merciful friends. If you're there this morning in the throes of doubt, I encourage you to search them out. Particularly those who have wrestled with doubt themselves. Some of them may be long dead, like Habakkuk and John the Baptist. Remember, there was a point in his own life when he had questions about whether or not Jesus was actually the Messiah. And then there were some of Jesus' own disciples, actually, who, as Jesus was preparing to ascend into heaven, after his resurrection and after imparting to them the Great Commission, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, it says, as all of them looked on, that some of them doubted. Some of them doubted even after they had seen and heard so many amazing things. And then there are people in church history like William Cooper and Charles Spurgeon and C.S. Lewis and Mother Teresa and Martin Luther. Others may be alive and well and they may, may minister to you from a distance through their writings or even their music. Andrew Peterson's music has been food for my soul. Particularly during the season when I experienced deep doubts about God and still others may be a part of your church family. In fact, this morning, um, I want to take a chance here. If you've experienced a crisis of faith in your life at any point along the way, would you be willing to admit it this morning so that those among us who are currently walking through the dark road of doubt might know at the very least that they are not alone. Wow. Brothers and sisters, there are many others around you who have traveled the road that you're on. Do not allow the devil to convince you that you are by yourself. Amen. The third thing I want you to see this morning is this, or the third thing I want you to encourage you with is take heart. Doubt doesn't have to be the end of your story, it's always important to set any Bible passage in its context. If we do that with our text this morning, we see that Habakkuk's doubts aren't the end of his story. And they don't have to be the end of yours either. Habakkuk started out with certain expectations of God, expectations voiced in his initial questions to God, Expectations, by the way, which God then exposes through his unexpected response to Habakkuk. That response sends Habakkuk into something of a a faith freefall, but he continues again to wrestle with God, to cling to God or to doubt toward God. And by the time the book closes... Habakkuk's faith is more deeply rooted, robust, and resilient than it's ever been. And I would argue that his faith ends up stronger, not in spite of the faith crisis he experienced, but actually because of it. Significant doubt can feel like a darkness that simply won't lift, which is why it's so helpful to pay attention to Habakkuk's entire story. I encouraged you to do this in the beginning, and if you haven't done it, go and read all three chapters. It's so important. And so helpful because it helps us to remember that God might just be working to strengthen your faith at the very moment when it feels so frail and so feeble. The devil would have you believe your days as a follower of Jesus are done because of your doubt, but that does not have to be the case. For one thing, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is. However, once doubt enters and infects our lives, it's easy to assume that you and I have caught some kind of incurable disease. Oftentimes, we just don't know any other way to process it. So we just assume that we've boarded the train to the land of complete and utter unbelief. But what if there's another way to view our doubts? Even the significant ones we experience when in a crisis of faith, like a laser-guided bomb drops into our laps. Charles Spurgeon once said, that when God begins to work, it always looks more like an undoing than a doing. I wanna say that again. Charles Spurgeon once said that when God begins to work, it always looks more like an undoing than a doing. That's certainly what Habakkuk experienced in God's answer to his heartbroken prayers But even God's judgment on Judah would not be the end of the story of the people of God. If you find yourself wrestling with significant doubt this morning, take heart. God might just be tearing out the flimsy foundation that you've been walking on for years. Assumed beliefs that you inherited from your family or from a former church or from a particular spiritual hero, and he may be preparing to replace those with the kind of tested trust in him that can carry you through difficult seasons to come. Seasons that might otherwise cause you to wither and die had he not previously provided the drought conditions that compelled the roots of your faith to go deeper in this season of your life in search of the living water. Viewed from this angle, significant doubts that compel us to ask significant questions like Habakkuk asks of God can actually provide us with an opportunity to examine our often unexamined beliefs about God, which is an incredibly healthy thing, by the way. If you and I will listen to our doubts and talk to God about our doubts and talk with trusted friends about our doubts and seek out solid answers to our hard questions, then our doubts can actually serve to fuel our growth in our faith. Rather, Than causing us to falter or even fall away from the faith. A pastor wrote these words a few years ago, and I think they are incredibly wise. Quote, A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. In other words, take your doubts seriously. Take your doubts to God. Take your doubts to the scriptures. Take your doubts to godly and trusted friends. Take your doubts to task. It's lazy to do otherwise. Consider this message and the questions of the prophet Habakkuk, your permission to actually go to the mat with God to wrestle long and hard if you have to and to refuse like Jacob to let go of God until he blesses you like he blessed Habakkuk by the end of the book with a far richer, far more robust and resilient faith that is stronger and more certain of God's goodness and God's sovereignty and God's wisdom as a direct result of the wrestling. Finally, oftentimes when you and I are experiencing significant doubt, we simply have to wait on the Lord as we wrestle with it. Notice how Habakkuk concludes this prayer. Look at verse 1, I mean, yeah, look at verse 1 of chapter 2. I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So Habakkuk has responded to God's response. Habakkuk has honestly and humbly presented his searching questions to the Lord. And then he takes the posture of a listener. He takes the posture of a learner. He positions himself to wait on the Lord. And that's exactly what you and I have to do sometimes. When we're experiencing or wrestling with significant doubts, our doubts and our questions may linger long. Mine hung around for months. For some unknown reason, Thomas, one of the 12, wasn't with the rest of the disciples when Jesus appeared to them on the evening of the day of his resurrection. So naturally, the other disciples told him that they had seen the Lord. And what was Thomas's response? Yeah right.. <laughs> John chapter 20 verse 25. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Wow. Now, What we often miss is the very beginning of the next sentence in John's gospel, verse 26. Eight days later. Eight days later. His disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Eight days later, why the delay? Obviously, Jesus wasn't hindered by locked doors, which I'm assuming means that he wasn't hindered by time or any other outside source either. No. He waited purposefully, allowing Thomas to sit with his doubt among the other disciples and their excitement and enthusiasm and wonder for over a week. Why? We don't know for sure. But we can rest assured that the Lord Jesus had good reasons for doing so. Reasons that were aimed at Thomas's greater good. What we do know is how Thomas responded when he finally did see Jesus face to face. He fell on his knees. He worshiped. He cried out, my Lord and my God. You know, it's quite possible he never would have had such an unforgettable encounter with the risen Christ had the Lord not allowed him to sit with his doubts for an extended period of time. There's no doubt we learn a lot about things when God requires us to wait. And when it comes to doubt, we often discover just how fragile our faith is the longer doubt lingers. which ultimately can compel us to cry out all the more for help and hope in the midst of our weakness. Brothers and sisters, this isn't a bad thing. So if you find yourself holding on for dear life in the midst of a dark night of doubt that you think will never lift, allow your weariness and your weakness and your questions to lead you to the Lord Jesus rather than away from him. Allow your doubts and your questions to pour forth from your soul in his presence and to lead you to confess to him, if you do not hold on to me, I deeply fear walking away from this thing altogether. If you do not cling tightly to my soul, I'm afraid that I'll let go of you. Friends, that that is a recipe for the increase of our faith. For depending less upon ourselves and the answers we can come up with and the solutions that we can deduce and entrusting ourselves wholeheartedly to Christ. So if you're facing something of a crisis of faith or you know someone who is, I hope that what we've talked about today will lead you to bring your doubts to God, to look for folks who have wrestled with God, That it'll encourage you to take heart. That God may be doing a great work in you right where you are. And finally, that you'll remember that in God's time and in God's way, the veil will lift and you'll see the sun again. Until then, wait on him. Wait with Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time and your word this morning. Lord, I am so incredibly grateful for the honest words of this heartbroken prophet that you have preserved for us in the scriptures. I'm so thankful for the gift of these words, because it tells me that you know how we talk when we are desperate. It tells me that you know that the life of faith is a challenging one. It tells me that, Father, just like you welcomed Habakkuk's questions, you will also welcome ours. So God, I pray for anyone this morning who is struggling through a season of doubt, that they would drop the pretense, that they would be willing to lay down the mask, that they would recognize that trying to hide those things from you is nothing more than putting on a veneer of religious performance. It is not trusting you. It is not relying upon your grace. It is not resting in the work of Christ who paid for every sin. Including, including those moments where we don't trust you as deeply as we should. So Lord, minister to hearts here this morning as we close out our service. If there is anyone struggling with significant doubt, Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage even to come down front and to kneel so that other brothers and sisters may gather around them and pray for them. God, that could be an incredible gift to someone walking through the darkness of doubt right now. May you minister to all of us as we sing now. In Jesus' name.